Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life to help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hi, Bill. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, on Rule the World. How are you today? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, no problem at all. Looking forward to uh, to learning from you. Um, so, uh, can we just start by you telling us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you spend your days doing? Uh, well, I suppose certainly related to what we're talking about today with stories. Uh, I'm a trainer of neuro linguistic programming (NLP), as some people call it. Uh, which is a way of um, helping people make changes, communicating. It's a way of, of how we interact with the world around us and an understanding of that. Um, and so I suppose my, my uh, greatest claim to fame in that field is that I work with one of the co-creators of NLP every year to train trainers um, that teach other people as practitioners of NLP. So that's and I've applied that to my work ever since the mid-1980s, really. So it's it's improved the quality of my interactions with uh, with other people and with the clients that I work with. Excellent. So can you, for those who don't know, can you give us a quick definition of NLP, what, what that entails? It's It's a study of how we take in the world around us and how we interact both with ourselves and with other people. And NLP really started off as a study of um, genius performance. And it's a method by which you can model the behavior of geniuses, work out what it is that they're doing that's genius-like, and teach it to other people. And that's really the foundations of NLP is modeling excellence, if you like, uh, spreading excellence skill. And a big part of that is um, metaphor. Indeed, yeah. And I can say a little bit more about how metaphor came into uh, 
yeah, to NLP. If, if you wouldn't mind, yeah, how, do, how does that fit into the whole uh, structure of NLP? Well, in the early days, when NLP was first developed, um, two people, two Americans, John Grinder and Richard Bandler, were modelling the behaviour of three therapists. And one of these therapists, these therapists, by the way, were considered geniuses to everyone else. These, these were people who could help clients make changes when everyone else had given up on them, if you like. Uh, and one of these three therapists was a man called Milton Erickson. And Erickson was um, probably the world's greatest ever hypnotherapist. He was a hypnotist. And he understood that telling people's stories helps them make changes at an unconscious level, if you like. So you would deliberately create therapeutic metaphors or stories to help people make changes. And as we go through, I'll give you an example or two of, of, of those. Uh, and so really that was where metaphor as a structure, as a deliberate technique or process was built into the world of NLP, really through the learnings and the modeling of Milton Erickson and the way he would use stories to help his clients make extraordinary changes. So you've used the, the phrase metaphor and you've used the phrase story. Are they interchangeable? Are they the same thing or, or are there some differences? Um, well, I suppose the way you define a metaphor is one thing represented by another. Um, so in that sense, um, stories are really uh, representations of lived or imagined life events. So in that sense, if the stories represent life itself, then they're metaphorical descriptions uh, of life itself. And in fact, the, even the words we use are metaphors in a real sense. Um, you know, if you listen to the word chair or you see it written, the word chair or the written word chair is not the thing that you sit on. It's just a noise you make with your mouth which represents a chair. So in that sense, the word chair is a metaphor for the thing itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So all of our language is metaphorical in its structure and its operation, in fact. Um, so that's how I would describe metaphor. And stories really are, are versions of these ways, especially if you use a story to help somebody understand something or make a change, then in that sense, it's a story applied as a metaphor in order to help the change. So that's how I relate those two. So what's the connection then for you applying metaphor within your NLP? Well, for example, as a trainer, I'll use metaphor to introduce a topic to the unconscious attention of a class. Um, for example, I tell a story of a walk on the beach um, on a holiday many years ago, and I tell it in three different ways. One, almost entirely in visual language, one in auditory words, and the third one in kinesthetic or physical wording. While the audience is noticing, or not, which of the three communication channels is the easiest for them to visualize, resonate with, or to follow, I'm also showing them, at a subliminal level, the nonverbal physiology, the hand gestures, the eye movements, voice tone patterns that actually belong with each mode of thinking. So, and I'm also introducing them to the types of words that indicate thinking in pictures, thinking in sounds, or sensations and feelings. So in this sense, the story is a vehicle for inductive, accelerated learning. I'm teaching people stuff without them realizing, if you like. Um, and then say, when I'm coaching somebody, I'll use metaphor to suggest changes or perceptions. Um, again, Milton Erickson used to tell a therapeutic story to some of his clients about a horse that ran into his father's farmyard when he was a boy. And um, I'll sometimes use this either to explain the job of the coach and the client 
or to suggest a difference between the conscious and the unconscious minds, let's say. And so this story of Milton, shall I tell it to you now? Yeah, tell us that yeah. story, that'd be great. So uh, when he was a young man, he was at home in his parents' farmyard when one day a stray horse suddenly appeared. It just ran into the farmyard. And when they looked at the horse, it had no brand, no identifying marks at all. So they had no idea whose horse it was or where it came from. So what Milton did was he jumped on the horse bareback and just directed it out to the road and then let the horse decide where to go. And any time the horse strayed into a field or stopped to chew some grass, uh, Milton would just gently nudge it back onto the road and it would keep trotting on. And then after a while, it entered a farmyard a few miles away and the farm farmer there was thrilled that someone had brought his horse back and he said to him, how did you know to bring the horse here? How did you know the horse belonged here? And Milton said, well, I didn't, but the horse did. And so that's that's a way of explaining, you know, if you like, the rider is the conscious mind, the horse is the unconscious mind. That's the metaphorical distinction that he's making in this particular case. And um, sometimes, for example, I might be coaching somebody who has a health issue. Um, and I may tell a story of a woman who came to me saying she had an allergy to sugar. And she was so sad because she couldn't even dunk a biscuit in a cup of tea or eat a small square of chocolate on her birthday. That was how she said it. And because of life events, she was so bitter, feeling as though she wasted 25 years of her life caring for someone who treated her really badly. And that metaphorical representation of being bitter, I made an interesting connection between that and her difficulty with sugar. So she says, I think I'm allergic to sugar, and she's bitter about life. Um, so at our second meeting, this, uh, this woman said, um, you know what, I don't know if it's something you said last time, but my arthritis has been so much better. So when I said to her, let that be a lesson to you, lady, that if your body can make amazing changes like that, then what we're doing here is easy peasy in comparison, isn't it? And the message in this story can be processed by the listeners unconscious as being applicable to them. And it helps people make the if you like, the internal health changes at an unconscious level, just because the story seems kind of familiar. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes and one of the things sense. We don't, and one of the things we don't ever do is explain the metaphor and what meaning of it is. The explanations I'm giving you are just for the purposes of this discussion. So the idea is you leave it hanging for the subconscious mind to kind of work it out. Is that right? Exactly right. That's the way the stories work, really, is, is the unconscious level, not the conscious level. So while the conscious mind is thinking, why is he telling me a story about a horse? <laughs> um, the unconscious is saying, oh, I get it. I know what you mean. Excellent. So um, in, in that um, discussion there, you talked about three, um, three different ways of telling the stories. You talked about telling a story visually with visual language, auditory with, with kind of auditory words, or kinesthetic and, and physical wording can can you give us examples of that what that may, what yeah. may that, that may sound like and how you combine the the three sure um well the point of i think i already explained the, the point of teaching people that in fact we think in different ways we do think in pictures and we think in sounds and we think in feelings smells and tastes and so i'll say well look um as i came out of the lift um the foyer was really dark and there was a brilliant light from the opposite corner from the glass door that led out into the street. And as we walked across this dark foyer and then pushed open the glass doors out into the street, the brilliant light suddenly 
blinded us, made our, our eyes water and made us sneeze. And then as we turned left, the first thing that greeted our gaze along the street were these fabulous tubs of beautiful flowers of purples and yellows and reds. And so, so that's visual language, mm -hmm. right? Um, then telling the same story again, coming out of the foyer, the noise of this lift door was a funny grinding noise as if the door was kind of falling apart. And then as we walked across the, the foyer, um, you could hear the slap, slap, slap of our flip-flops on the floor. And when you pushed open these glass doors to the outside, the spring on these glass doors was so strong, it made a kind of grinding noise, went <clears throat> like this. And as you pulled, pushed and stepped outside of the doors, because the spring was so strong, the door clanged shut with a And then there was this huge truck that came past with a big rock in the back of it, and it was a big steel truck. So the noise was absolutely deafening. So that's an example yeah. of the audience one, right? And then the same story again in, in physical sensations. It was hot. As we walked across the dark foyer in the cool, we knew that the minute that we pushed open that door and leaned on it and stepped outside, we were into the oven of the sunshine in the street. And because it was 11 o'clock in the morning, the street was already hot, hot, hot. And as we turned left, the first thing that assailed our senses was the smell of these plants, because all of these plants had been chosen for their beautiful perfume. There were lavenders and various other jasmines. And so the smells were absolutely sweet. And we crossed over the road, and then you got the smells of the cooking from a cafe where we used to like to. So that's an example of the way you change the language. And how, um, do, you, how do you know which language to use when, or do you tend to combine them into into one yeah well in real terms i mean part part of the study of nlp is how do we actually use language how does our thinking and our language link together so if we're thinking in pictures the words that come out of our mouths are pictorial words if we're thinking in sounds then sound words come out and so on and so that that teaching helps people recognize that one is we think in visual auditory or kinesthetic words as as well as the images and so on um, and so everything matches. And in fact, when people are just in normal conversation, most of us lead with one of those. In other words, I may speak mostly in visual language and partially say in auditory and not much kinesthetic or vice versa. Most people major in one, have a second and don't use a third very much. And so most of us have habits and it's just a habitual ways of thinking. Um, and so what we can do in NLP is we can deliberately use that kind of language when we're telling a story to get a particular effect. So if we want the audience to see images, we talk in images, and then we watch their physical, their physical feedback to see whether they're actually responding to the way I'm telling the story. And I can change the way I tell the story according to the response I'm getting. So is, there, is there a way, I understand if there's people in the room, so you and I are talking now, we can see yeah. each other on, on the screen, so... Um, we can we can get that kind of feedback, but if somebody uh, let's let's use marketing as an example, if somebody's putting a, a message out, telling a story, uh, marketing to a broad audience, and it's going on say a website and it's text on a website, and they're trying to tell a story, should yep. they then therefore combine the three sets of language? Indeed, because one of the values of that is that whoever's reading it, whichever is their major, whichever is the easiest language for them to absorb information via 
then you're going to get to all, all of the people that read the website. It may well be also that you want the, the reader to have a particular experience. So you may deliberately choose visual words or you may deliberately choose kinesthetic words. So very often, for example, if you want to persuade people to start to think on a certain direction or accept an idea, sometimes it can be very powerful to start with how it feels to have a problem, to then go on to about what it sounds like and what people are saying about this, and then talk about your vision or your ideal view. So you go from feeling to sound to vision, and that can be a very persuasive uh, pattern. It can be a very persuasive pattern if you're giving a speech where you want to sway the audience. Um, and so on. political speeches often function very well that way. They start with the feeling how bad it feels, talks about, you know, what they're talking about, and what everyone says about it. And then says, and my vision is um, imagine what it will be like if and so on. So that's that's a structure that can deliberately be used uh, going through those. Perfect. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense. So so where is it that. Where do you get your stories from and, and how do you choose which ones to tell in, in a given situation? Mm, that's a good question. I suppose most of my stories emerge from my experiences. I mean, I've had, what, nearly four decades as a trainer and a facilitator working in many different parts of the world. And so you can probably imagine I've got a fairly big fund of, of experiences and stories anyway. And it's the context in which I'm choosing them that dictates what the situation being talked about reminds me of, let's say. And sometimes I might even embellish a story just to, to, to make a point. Um, well, for example, many years ago, I was in southern Spain. I was the assistant manager on a commercial nursery in Almeria. And um, we were growing a big a crop of big beefsteak tomatoes. And we were using a system of automatic watering. In fact, it was the first of its kind in that part of Spain. So I was kind of pioneering that at the time. And um, we were feeding and watering our plants from a small reservoir on the nursery that had to be filled up every couple of days. So I was given, I had a supervisor and a team of about 12 workers in one of the greenhouses, setting them up to, to do a particular task. And um, we had 12 of these greenhouses, and each one of these was about the size of a kind of professional football pitch. And there were 12,000 plants in each. So we had 144,000 plants altogether to look after. So anyway, my boss, the manager, came in and said, hey, Bill, will you go and find Juan and tell him we need to fill the reservoir right away because we're going to be watering in, in less than an hour. So I said to him, yeah, sure, I'll be about 10 minutes before I finish with these and then I'll go and look for Juan. And he said he just turned purple with rage and yelled at me, what the hell are you talking about? So I said, well, I don't want to leave these people just standing. He said, listen, if we don't get that water on those plants here now, we're going to lose a truss of tomatoes. You know how many tons of tomatoes that is. Get your ass out there and find one now. <laughs> and <laughs> now the staff didn't really know what he was saying because they spoke Spanish and he was speaking English. Um, but you could tell from the body language, it was pretty upset with me and I felt pretty stupid as well. But on that particular day, I learned a really important leadership message about priorities and how to find the most effective way to get your message across. So even though I felt really stupid, I was really grateful to my manager for that um, because I've often used that story to help people recognize that sometimes, you know, you have to identify the priorities. There are certain things which if you don't get that right, nothing else matters. And certainly that was an illustration of it. So there's there's another way that a story can help leaders in a, in a management program, let's say. Um, that's an example. Um, 
then there's another one actually. Should, should I tell you this one? Yeah. I was yeah. I was involved. It was back in 1991. I was involved in a safety training project in the island gas industry, uh, and this was in Brunei, in, on the island of Borneo in the South China Sea. And um, I was working with a consultant colleague, and we were delivering this course to offshore oil workers. And in the lunch break, we were sitting on this low concrete wall, um, and there was a wide red sandy beach on the other side of it. And, and this was a, a, a tidal beach, so the sand was still wet. Now, this colleague of mine, he was very easy to get along with, but he had a really weird habit. Whenever he'd finished a canned drink of any kind, and he used to have a lot of them, either soft or alcoholic, it didn't matter where he was, he'd stand the can vertically on the, on the floor and then stamp hard on it and smash it flat. Um, and it was a kind of compulsion with him. It, it was a bit disturbing when in the evening we might be at the dinner table in India or a Chinese restaurant and he stamps on this can on the tiled floor and everyone jumps and thinks, what's that noise? And so on. And he, he just, I don't know, it, he seemed to be oblivious to the world with this thing about the cans. Anyway, on this day, he takes his last bite of his sandwich and he stamps on his can. And in that moment, I realised that Although we were chattering away about the work and what we do next in the afternoon, he was completely cut off from his surroundings. I mean, he didn't realise that on that beach, for example, there were a million little crabs excavating little pits in the sand. There were probably, what, 30 or 40 crabs per square metre, so there's no way you could have laid on that beach and sunbathed. You'd have been covered in crabs within a minute. And, and then I looked up in the air and I did it in a rather exaggerated fashion because I wanted him to look up too and see if he would. Because about, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 metres above us, there was this fabulous sea eagle. And this bird had a wingspan of maybe, what, two, three metres. It was huge. It was like a small aeroplane. And it was just hanging there on the breeze, just motionless, right above our heads. And this colleague of mine, you know, he had no idea either the crabs were there. He had no idea that Sea Eagle was there. And, uh, you know, what I was struck by was how easy it is for some people to be so totally enclosed in their own thoughts and perceptions that their immediate surroundings can be completely out of reach and unavailable to them. And as a coach, for example, when I'm working with people dealing with stress or overwhelming workloads, let's say, Telling that story can sometimes help a person realise how they're maintaining their struggles, if you like, by shutting themselves off from their surroundings. And just telling the story helps them kind of recognise, maybe I need to look outward more instead of looking inward so much. And uh, so that's one of the ways that I'll tell a story like that to, uh, to help people make a shift. Brilliant. So you've told us a number of stories this morning and, and you've given us some examples. Um, so... Um, is there a particular way that you structure your stories? You talked a couple of minutes ago about the political kind of story structure, but the stories that you've told us, um, how, how have you structured them, or is it different depending on the context that you're telling the story in? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't deliberately structure the stories. Um, usually what happens is when, when a client's working with me and they're telling me what their issue or the problem is, uh, I might then realise that what they're talking about reminds me of a particular experience I had, and I think, actually, this story is relevant here. For example, I was working with a woman um, a while ago um, who um, has uh, metastases of uh, cancerous growths in her bones, for example, and she was a, a leader in a company, she, and um, 
And she said to me, well, I'm, I'm concerned about these cells that have gone wrong and I just want them to put it right, you see. And I said, in a way, you know, it's a bit like, you know, when you've got employees where you get really great team members who are dedicated and keen to do their job and they're good workers, you hire them because they're good. But what you find is what they're doing is not what you need them to do. And so as a leader, you might say to them, hey, listen, I love the way you're so dedicated. I love your commitment to what we do. I really trust and, and, and like you. And what I really would like you to do is to do this. So I'd rather you do this than what you're doing. Is that okay with you? I mean, I remember a boss when I was working in, uh, in Almeria came and said that to me, one of the business managers. He said, Bill, you know, we're glad you're with the project. We really like what you do. But when you tell Tony about this, about the problems, all it does is upset him. I really want you to do something different. So if that ever occurs, would you do this instead? And so I told her these stories like this. And for her, the metaphor was, Oh, okay. So the cells are actually doing a good job. They're just not doing the job I want them to do. So rather than think of them as bad and needing to be destroyed, I think of them as good and needing to be redirected. And so even using a metaphor like that can help the healing process. And and, and did it with her? Did she, was she, was well, she helped? Well, it's very interesting. More recently, she was having some, some growths in, in, in the outside of her skull. And she said, something very interesting happening. These are getting smaller and smaller. I know that they're reducing. So who knows? We never really know what's going to happen. We just uh, come up with what seems appropriate at the time. And, uh, so those are examples, if you like. So in other words, it's almost like the structure of the story is dictated by the issue and the story itself that seems to fit what we're dealing with. Certainly, that's the way I often do it. More formally, with therapeutic um, work, then sometimes you can deliberately structure a story to make it match the issues in the life of the person that you're coaching. Um, and we call these isomorphic metaphors where somebody says, well, look, I've got this particular problem with people at work, with my boss, with so-and-so. What you do is you make up a story which has characters in it who are roughly equal to those people that they've talked about, including the person themselves. And it might be a fairy story. So you might say, well, actually, there was this young man woke up in a dream and realized that he was faced by a dangerous black fire breathing dragon. Uh, and the fear in this young man's face as he smelt the hot breath of the dragon and realized he might get fried and so on. So you make up a story like this, which matches being shouted at by the boss, let's say, because the dragon is so different that there's no way his conscious mind makes the link. But his unconscious says, oh, that's the same as me in my situation. And so you can structure a metaphor to, to fit each of the characters and the story has a solution, which, of course, then suggests to the unconscious of the client that maybe there's a solution to their story as well. And so that will happen sometimes. That's that's quite a skill to develop. And it is one of the skills that we develop as trainers of, uh, of NLP in order to help people deliberately. So that's and isomorphic metaphors isomorphic which means it matches perfectly the situation you know piece for piece character for character um and you deliberately create the story that has a solution so that the unconscious of the listener can assume that there's a solution to their problem as well and very often that's that's the way and again milton erickson used to use many metaphors like that there's there's a fabulous book written about the work that milton erickson and these stories and this book is called um, My Voice Will Go With You. 
and it's written by a therapist called Sidney Rosen, R-O-S-E-N. Quite a famous book in the NLP world. Um, and it's full of all the stories that Milton Erickson used to tell his clients in, in therapeutic form uh, with explanations of how they were used and the effects they would have and so on. So that's a very valuable book. Uh, and I often refer to that, especially when I'm working with clients on health work and that kind of stuff. There's also another book. There's one I've got here called Therapeutic Metaphors. It was written after a study of um, Milton Erickson by a man called David Gordon. He was one of the uh, original students of uh, Bandler and Grinder in NLP. And he wrote a book explaining how it was that, uh, that Erickson would construct these isomorphic metaphors. So that's almost an instructional book. So it's called Therapeutic Metaphors by David Gordon. It's a very good book. I'm sure that we shall uh, we shall have a read of, of both of them. Um, any other books come to mind while we're on the, on the theme of uh, well, books? Well, there's, there's a much more modern one. It's called The Magic of Modern Metaphor. And in fact, I think it has a Liverpool link as well, because it's a story about a young boy and his granddad in Liverpool, and his granddad has an allotment. And his granddad tells him stories that all the famous rock stars and TV stars and film stars have visited him on his allotment. And he uses these stories to tell the young lad about how to live life. So uh, that's a book called uh, The Magic of Modern Metaphor, Walking with the Stars. And it's written by a chap called David Hodgson. Um, so that's that's quite a nice nice little book as well. Excellent. We shall we shall dig that out and find that one as well. Um, so in in your four decades of telling stories and telling metaphors, what common attributes have the best metaphors had? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, I, I think the issue is. It, Sometimes, you know, when I when I pick a story to tell someone simply because what they're saying reminds me of an experience I had. And I think this might be an appropriate example of what we're talking about. Very often what I'll do is I'll watch and notice the effect or not uh, on that person of the metaphor. And I may end up telling them two, three or four. Uh, so, in fact, it may be much more than one single story. I may choose several as I see a grading effect on, on the person as they receive these stories and so on. Um, so I don't know there's any particular story that's more powerful than the rest. It's just whatever seems appropriate at the time, I think. And if you could give one one piece of advice to our listeners that would take them from being a, a good storyteller to, to an exceptional storyteller, what would that bit of advice be? Um, well, one of them is read a lot, because the more you read, obviously, you know, the more stories you get. So read fiction as well as fact. Um but also, uh, I mean, the key issue that we tell NLP trainers is, look, every single day you're having an experience. You know, you walk down the street, something happens. There's a story to be told there. Um, and, you know, very often, for example, you, you may see someone do an after dinner speech and they'll say something like, you know, I had a funny experience as I got off the train this evening. And then they tell a story of something that happened. And so we're full of stories. The world, the world is a continuing story uh, around us. And so pay attention to the stories of every little incident that happens to you because there's always some treasure in that. Um, and I think paying attention to the story nature of our lives is uh, it's a really valuable asset. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, I carry a small notebook with me and just kind of jot things down that happen, stories that, that happen and will work. And I know a yeah. number of other people do, particularly... Um, 
write, like, fiction writers and, and screenplay writers, they always just have a little notebook in their back pocket and they just scribble down anything that happens, any characters that they meet, anyone who will fit into their stories. So I think that's, exactly. uh, that's a really good piece of advice. Um, mm. So um, who do you think about when you hear the word story? Oh, goodness. My mum. Oh. And, why, and why is that? Yeah. Well, I think I have really fond memories of, of being a little boy, sitting with my brother and sister and around the armchair in front of the fire and mum with a big book open. And I, what pops into my mind is a story of a character called Toby Twirl and, um, uh, or Billy Goat's Gruff. And I remember hearing these stories over and over as a very small child. And I guess it was probably the memories of those, the close memories of the warmth and the happiness created by those stories that, that built story into me as a, just a way of being, as a way of understanding the world. And I guess that is the way most of us acquire story, isn't it? It's why stories are so powerful, powerful for all of us, I think, is because of those childhood memories. Certainly for me, that's it's my mum that pops into my mind, this story. Excellent. So context of, of where we hear the stories is important as well, because those memories are embedded with you because you were sat in that warm comfortable loving environment so uh, is that important uh, or how important is that when you're telling stories to to potential clients and people you're trying to to influence um i think what it is because because the stories come out of me as just simply recounting my experience in other words if i'm telling you about you know the nursery in Almeria and being bored at by my boss i'm i'm not i'm I'm telling you of a memory I had rather than thinking I'm telling you a story. Does that make sense? I'm not, I know it's a story. I know it's an anecdote, but it comes out naturally. It's, it's really Bill expressing himself and talking about his experience. And so what happens is my, my normal tone of voice, my normal gestures and so on, they, they're all part of that, the way I tell that story um, because it's real for me. And I suppose the impression that the other person gets on the receiving end is, that this is genuine, that Bill's not artificial. This is really, he's telling us about his memories, his experience. And I think when you when you give that genuine way of dealing with whatever it is that you're telling, it has a huge effect on the listener. The listener recognises that this is, this is something real. There's a reaction to it, which is a natural reaction rather than a stilted one. And even though I may tell the same story in many different contexts, Nevertheless, it's always fresh because of what's happening in that moment. Um, and I suppose one of the other things as well, of course, and this is the difference between being in front of a listener or an audience, is that you can watch their reactions and you can pause and you can raise your voice and you can lower your voice and you can pause for effect or you can raise your voice and you can shout. You can do all kinds of things to affect the mood as well. And the more you do that, it's almost like play acting the stories, the more alive they become. Uh, and when we were chatting before, you, you asked me about how do you keep an audience interested when the, a story is a fairly long one. And one of the ways is to watch the audience and to interact with them. So they become part of the story by their reactions. Uh, and when you stay connected and, and sometimes you just simply stop. And then they're hanging on your every word because they think, what's he going to say now? Um, I remember there used to be a famous TV presenter called uh, Jakob Bronowski. Many years ago, he wrote a book called The Ascent of Man. And he used to have a marvellous way of speaking on the TV. He would walk towards the camera at the beginning of each episode of his programme. 
and he would walk slowly and he would speak deliberately and he would leave long pauses because he really wanted to make the point and the way he did that was amazing because you hung on every word it's almost like you couldn't wait to hear what he was going to say next and it was a very very powerful um, way of, of speaking and telling stories so all of these are methods and techniques you can use to enhance the quality of the experience for the listener for yourself as a storyteller of course Perfect. That's great. Bill, thanks very much for, for all that you've shared with us today. So um, just finally, where can we find out more about you? Where can we find you online? Where can we find out what you're doing and what you're offering? Well, my LinkedIn profile is probably the best place to, uh, to find out you know, who I am and what I do. Um, and it's Bill Phillips with double L. Um, I also have a website, a coaching website, um, which is billphillipsconsulting.co.uk. And that's another source of reference for some of my stories and uh, on what goes on. So maybe there, there are a couple of good references. Excellent. Um, currently, I'm currently based in Dublin and I'm building a business over here called the Bittner Phillips Partnership. And um, we're majoring on working with teams and, uh, and helping teams get their act together and cohere quickly and raise their performance. So there's a couple of ideas about me. Excellent. Well, Bill, thanks very much. Really enjoyed talking to you and learning from you. Um, and I uh, hope we can do this again sometime soon. That was lovely. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for the invitation, Paul. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you and see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.